Good morning, everyone. Morning. Good. There you go. All right. Good morning, everybody. My name is Adam. Uh, It's my honor to serve as one of the elders and pastors here at Missio. And so just want to, again, welcome you, especially if you're visiting with us. I know we've got Labor Day weekend, and so if you're here with friends, family, or whatever brings you here this morning, if you're new, we're delighted that you would join us uh, as we worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, together. I know it was already said, but just in case you missed it or weren't here, uh, if you are new to Missio or if you're new-ish, you've been coming maybe just the last few months, we do want to invite you to lunch uh, in just a couple of weeks, two weeks from today, September 15th, right after the service. Uh, we would love to have you as our guest. We're going to meet in the education building. If you had kids, you may have dropped them off over there just to my left, your right. Uh, we're going to have lunch right after the service as soon as it concludes. Uh, so come on over, be our guest. Uh, it's an opportunity just to hear a little bit about what's going on in the church, our vision, values, the things that drive us, what we believe God's called us to do, meet some of the leaders of the church, and ask questions. So it's a, a great opportunity. Uh, we'd love to have you there. If you did receive one of these bulletins on your way in, you can actually sign up right on there. Just give us your information, and on the back, or somewhere, let us know that you're interested in coming to that meet and greet lunch. So we, we would love to have you there. Well, this morning we are in between our series. Uh, we just last week concluded our series in the Gospel of Mark. Next week, we're going to begin going through the Psalms. We're going to go through the first book of the Psalms, which is the first 41 chapters. Uh, so this morning, we're kind of right in the middle. So I was given a, you know, a pick your own, a choose your own adventure. Uh, So this morning, we are going to take a look at Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. So if you've got a Bible, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 15 or grab one of the Bibles that's there in front of you, or we'll also have the words up on the screen. Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we come to your word this morning so grateful that you are a God who speaks to us, that you reveal to us who you are through your word and in your son Jesus and by your spirit. Lord, we pray that you would teach us this morning, that that you would continue to shape us to be your people, that you would receive glory and honor through us. So Lord, help us to to hear and to understand and to obey your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So if I were to say 
These words, let us now join together in praying the prayer that our Lord Jesus taught us to pray. Those of you who grew up in different church backgrounds would take that as a cue, right, to begin reciting the Lord's Prayer with me. And I'm not asking, I'm not going to, I'm going to have that awkward moment where am I asking, am I not? I'm not asking. But we would go on to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our... Most of you said trespasses. Depending on where you grew up, right, some of you would say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Others of you would say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And the rest of you would say, forgive us our... And wait to see what the person next to you was going to say, right? How's this church going to do it? Well, there's a story, I'm not sure how true it is, there's a story of two congregations that were located right near each other in a small town, and these churches were considering a merger, right? Both were struggling and thought we'd be a lot more effective if we would come together as, as one, but they failed. They couldn't pull off the merger. The reason as crazy as it sounds, was they couldn't agree on how to recite the Lord's Prayer. Some wanted to stick with, forgive us our trespasses, and the others wanted to stick with, forgive us our debts. And neither one was going to compromise, and so they couldn't merge, and the local paper picked up the story and wrote this, that one church went back to its trespasses while the other returned to its debts. That was a silly example of, you know, church dividing over something so petty, the verses that, I, that we just read in Romans chapter 15 are an appeal for us to stick together. They're an appeal for us to love one another. They're a call for us together to work at preserving our unity. And in these verses and in the chapter leading up to it, it Paul acknowledges the challenge that that can be. That relationships, even in the church, are difficult, that we're different, that we view the world very differently. Even in the church, that we have very different convictions, and sometimes those differences create separation, and sometimes they create struggle, and sometimes they create hostility. And so we find in this passage, I think, a really important exhortation that we are to bear with each other, to build up each other, and to welcome one another. And so originally, you know, Bernie had asked me if I would preach on something this week, kind of in between this, these two sermon series that was related to the vision of the church, and I'm not typically one to pass up an opportunity to talk about why we should saturate this community with the gospel and why we should go plant more churches, right, and why we should live as a people who are sent into this world. But a, a few months ago, I read these verses going through Romans and it just stuck with me, and I kept coming back to these seven verses over and over and over again. And I think in part it's because I find myself just kind of tired and lamenting right, the division that exists in our world today, the hostility that exists in our world today, and finding in these verses a call and a, and a challenge and an encouragement for the church to be something so very different. Not marked by division and distrust. 
And how much does our world in this day need us, need the church to desperately be a people who will do the hard work of bearing with each other rather than abandoning? To do the hard work of building each other up rather than tearing down. And so with the gospel as our foundation, right, we, we don't resort to the tactics of our day. We resist the desire to satisfy our flesh and vilify one another. And instead, we work at loving those we disagree with. And so these verses, I think, deal honestly with the reality that the unity of the church is hard. But it's worth it. It's so, so worth it. And so I think these verses give us a hopeful reminder of that. I think it reminds us why our unity is worth the struggle and gives us some helpful instruction on how we do that, how we can bear with each other and build each other up. And so what we have in these verses, really, it's, it's a summary or a conclusion of what Paul's writing in, in chapter 14, where he's instructing the Christians in Rome on how to treat one another when they have opposing convictions on certain issues, right? That's what chapter 14 is all about and leads into chapter 15 of this conclusion where he's teaching these Christians in Rome, how do you deal with, how do you treat one another when you find yourselves on opposite sides of the table with opposing convictions? And actually, if you zoom out even a little bit further, what we see is this whole section of Romans chapters 12 through 15, the main theme is to love one another. Right? Over and over again, you have these commandments on how we're to treat one another. Right? If, if you're familiar with this book, the first 11 chapters are full of instruction and explanation of the gospel, of the depth of our sin, how we're guilty before a holy God, of the good news of how we're justified and made right. That's the first 11 chapters. And then there's this transition in chapter 12. And from there on out, Paul's main focus is how we treat each other. He says, let love be genuine. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. These are just some examples of the many commands. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Live in harmony, he writes, with one another. Associate with the lowly. Repay no one evil for evil. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Owe no one anything except to love each other. So you get the sense that's what's in focus here. That's what... The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write. That's what was on his mind for this section was loving each other. That's his focus, right? He's written extensively on what Christ has done. And now as he considers these Christians in Rome, he sees divisions beginning to form and grow. And so a large portion of the rest of the letter is devoted to exhorting them to love. What Christ has done which he's already explained, is too important, too crucial to let our pride and our opinions tear us apart. And we know that our flesh feeds off of division. We know that the world feeds off of division. We know that the enemy feeds off of division, right? It starts with simply separation, acknowledging the fact that I'm different. I'm different than you are. I land on the other side when it comes to that opinion, when it comes to that conviction, we're different. But how easily I'm different turns into I'm better. 
And that because, because of the way I view things, because of these differences, or in terms of our, of our group as a whole, we're different. How easily it slides from we're different to we're better than. And our significance then becomes derived from differences. And so Paul sees these divisions taking place. And they're not, they're not issues that we necessarily wrestle with, but I want to just touch on quickly what it is in their day that was causing so much struggle for them. And then we'll, we'll make the application to us here today. Right? He tells us in chapter 14, there's really two issues going on. Verse 2, he tells us that one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. So there's a question about their food. Should they continue to observe the food laws or not? In verse 5 of chapter 14, he says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Right? In the Jewish law, there's a lot of feasts, and there's a lot of fasts. And so there's a question of, should we continue to observe those or not? And so you have in Rome this community that's mixed of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and essentially they're disagreeing on the role of the Old Testament laws. You have these Jewish Christians who, who viewed Christianity as a part of Judaism, and so they required their followers to observe the law. And it, it was not a matter of salvation for them, right? They knew salvation was by grace. Paul settled that earlier in the letter, that nobody's justified by works, so they weren't looking to the law for their justification. No, in the church, it was more of a matter of how they were viewing one another, that they were viewing those who didn't observe the law as less than, as inferior to. And so they had a hard time accepting the Gentiles as equal brothers and sisters since they didn't observe all of their customs. And that conflict we see throughout Paul's writings influencing what he says. And to us it seems like no big deal. We're past that. Argument settled. We're not fighting over food. We're not fighting over the church calendar. Um, But the reality is I think one thing we do need to know is how significant their division really was. Though it seems silly to us. Listen to what one commentator says. That when those words were spoken, these words written in the New Testament, the world at that time was cleft by great deep gulfs of separation. Like the crevices in a glacier, by the side of which our racial animosities and class differences are merely superficial cracks on the surface. He says, comparatively speaking, we know we've got in our world today racial animosity and differences in class in our country and around the world. He says, comparatively speaking, you line those up side by side, our differences are merely small cracks compared to these clefts in a glacier that existed at this time. Their language, their religion, their national animosities, differences of sex split the world into fragments. The learned and the unlearned, the slave and the master, the barbarian and the Greek, the man and the woman stood on opposite sides of the gulf, flinging hostility across. That's the world into which Paul is writing this letter. And he says that these issues that are dividing them are matters of opinion. Verse 1, for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then down in verse 17, he says that these things are not central to the kingdom of God. He writes, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So his concern is not the closed-handed issues, things that are central to the kingdom of God. That's not what's separating them. 
These things are separating them from one another to the point where he writes in verse 10 of chapter 14, why do you pass judgment on your brother or why do you despise your brother? Right? Their differences on these issues are leading them to a place where they're judging each other, they're despising each other. It's not that they're attempting to justify themselves before God, no. He's concerned with how they're treating each other. Right? The Jews are proud of their favored status, their history, The Gentiles are proud of the freedom that they have and Paul's goal is that both would be humble towards each other and love one another, right? And we recognize these aren't our battles, right? We're not debating over these things. We're not fighting over what to have for lunch today, right? We have other issues within the church, right? We disagree passionately over areas of philosophy and ministry, what the church should be like and what the church should do. Everything from the stripped down house church to the smoke and lights of the mega church and all in between, right? And we're passionate about the way it should be done and what's most effective and what's gonna reach people and what's gonna grow people. And we're convinced, right, that the church as we would build it, as we would design it, is the right way. We're convinced that, you know what, we place too much emphasis on this. Or others will even say there's not enough emphasis on the very same thing. We disagree on how to spend our time. There should be more discipleship. Nope, there should be more evangelism. We disagree on how we should share the gospel. We need to be more bold. No, we need to be more loving and earn the right to be heard. We disagree on our liturgy, on the order and the elements of worship, what should be included. Some say, I I don't understand why we do communion every week. Others say, I love the fact that we do communion every week and both think that it's right and both think that it's best. We convinced the translation of the Bible. You know, if you use that KJV, you're obviously uptight. If you use that message version of the Bible, I can't believe he quoted from that. I'm not even sure he's saved. (laughs) And we pass judgment on one another based on the translation of the Bible that we're holding. In our day and in our culture, how we respond to injustice. As Christians, we are all to care about injustice that exists in this world. We're to be passionate about it because our God is passionate about it, because our God is a God of justice. But man, we cannot agree on how we should address it. I mean, we're, we're standing ready right, to attack, to jump. If you say the wrong thing at the wrong time from the wrong person, or if you don't say the right thing at the time I think you should say it, right, we are ready to jump. Thumbs out. Let's go. How do we utilize certain gifts of the Spirit? How do we educate our kids? I remember when our oldest was, getting, was in preschool and we started asking other Christians, what do you think we should do? How have you educated your children? Right? I mean, we heard everything from Christians should not be in public schools. That is the enemy's territory. Right? To, I don't know how Christians could keep their kids out of the public schools and claim to be light in a dark world. You're putting a bowl over your light. You're hiding it under a bushel. No. And of course, politics. I mean, literally, we heard in the last election, if you were paying attention, right, Christians shouldn't vote for Clinton. And then you heard Christians shouldn't vote for Trump. 
And chances are you're passionate about one of those two statements. And that's fine, right? It's, it's, we're not saying that these things are not important, but they shouldn't divide us the way that they do. They're examples of issues that make it hard at times to love one another. And that's what Paul's talking about here. That this unity that we're to experience as a church is hard work, but it's worth it. And so he goes on to say in chapter 15 then, this is where all of this has led him to conclude that we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We're commanded three things in these passages. To bear with each other, to build up each other, and to welcome one another. It requires of us a wholehearted acceptance of brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those who hold different opinions. And this is especially true, and everything I'm about to say is especially true of the brothers and sisters in Christ who you're married to or related to or live in your home. It's especially true of them. And the reality is, they're oftentimes the hardest ones to love. When it comes to those around us in our workplace, in our culture, outside of our home, we're ready to listen and to seek to understand and to assume the best and to try to learn their view. But when it comes to those brothers and sisters in our own home, under our own roof, we often have no grace and no patience and no willingness to bear with them, even though we've covenanted together to do so. And so, again, he's talking here about opinions, he says, not issues that are central to the kingdom. He's not talking about debates over salvation and sin and Jesus, whether or not he's the only way. That's not what's in debate here. These, he says, are not matters central to the kingdom. He's also not saying that you can't have convictions on all of the things that I mentioned. You can and should have your own convictions, He's not saying you should not have them. Paul even says, if you look back at 14.14, he says, I know I'm right. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean. So he's like, I've got my opinion on this debate over clean and unclean. I know I'm on the right side. I'm persuaded in the Lord. So he's not saying don't have your convictions and don't stand by them. Paul himself said, I know where I stand on this debate. I'm convinced of it. In fact, he assumes, right, by what he says here, those who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak. There's a weaker position. There's the assumption somebody's wrong. We can't both be right here. He's not giving you license to say the doctrine doesn't matter. We just need to love each other. No, we're called to exhort each other. Later on in this same chapter, verse 14, he says, I'm glad that you're still instructing one another. Right? We're even called to rebuke and correct each other. Right? So we can't say, you know, the, the doctrine just doesn't matter. Our convictions don't matter, just love each other. And in fact, if convictions, doctrines, those types of things, it gets in the way of loving each other. Don't go there. Right? Because the first 11 chapters of this letter establish the essential doctrines of the faith and it's upon that ground Right, that foundation that he lays about these essential doctrines of our faith, of who Christ is and all that he's done for us, it's on that foundation of doctrine that we're able to love each other well. Right, so please don't take all this and say doctrine's not important, just love each other. Right, no, it's critical. 
But what he does call us to is to bear with those who have different convictions. And what we see is that their, their position, right, those who are weak as he describes them, their position on a particular issue may actually be inferior to your position, but the person who holds it is not. Right? That's his point here, that their position, yes, in fact, it may be inferior, it may be the weak position between the two of you, but the individual is not inferior. And that's where the struggle lies, that it's a very smooth, easy transition from judging the position to judging the person, becoming frustrated and despising the very individual. And so then instead of bearing with, we, we abandon. Instead of building up, we tear down. And so how do we avoid that path that goes from simply we can disagree with each other to I'm frustrated with you to I'm bitter towards you because you view the world, you view this issue, you live your life in a different way than I do. And he says that those who are strong have an obligation, right? He's saying don't use your strength for your own good. Don't use your position to seek your own advancement, but seek the good of others. Let each of us, verse 2, please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That's his point, that when it would be natural to our flesh to judge and despise those who have a different position, we then go out of our way to value that person, to show wholehearted acceptance. Because it's inconsistent with our culture. It's completely opposite to what our flesh wants to do. But it is based on the logic of the gospel. Look at what he writes as he continues. We bear with, verse one. We build up, verse two. Why, verse three, four. Christ did not please himself. Then he quotes Psalm 69, that the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me, that he took our blame, that he took our fault upon himself, that our obedience to these commands, bear with, build up, welcome, is motivated by the gospel. It's fueled by our commitment to the gospel. The fact that Christ, he says, didn't aim to please himself should reorient the way that we treat one another. The fact that he didn't aim to please himself should reorient the way we treat those we disagree with. We know what it is in our relationship with Christ to be the weaker brother and to be built up by him. Those of us who are in Christ have experienced that. A savior who didn't aim to please himself but built up us as the weaker brother. Bore with us, with our faults, with our blame, with our sin, even though he's stronger than us in every single way, didn't use his position to please himself. And so Paul tells us, bear with each other. Build each other up because of what Christ did for us. And he's going to conclude in verse 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. In the same way that you've been welcomed, that you've experienced the welcome of Christ in the same way that you've experienced that welcome, that's what should orient you towards your brothers and sisters in Christ to welcome them the very same way. And it's not easy. It's, it's difficult work. It's much easier to tear down. It's much easier to turn our backs. 
It's much easier to look down upon and to judge. It comes so naturally to our flesh, and what we need is a great deal of endurance in order to bear with each other and encouragement. And he goes on to say that's exactly what we find in the scriptures and through the power of God. Look at verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Our unity, our relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ, it requires endurance, does it not? It's hard work. It requires struggle. To bear with one another implies that we are working at this. That I'm going to give you the honor and the dignity of putting in the work. That I'm going to show you that you're valuable to me because I'm not just going to abandon you even though I totally disagree with your position. And even though it drives me nuts, I'm going to show you value and honor by putting in the endurance to bear with you. And we find that in the scriptures. It requires encouragement because we're going to hurt others and we're going to be hurt by others. We're going to get offended and we're going to offend. And so we need encouragement that comes, he writes, through the scriptures that as we're reminded, as he's reminded them of all that Christ has done to unite them as one family, as one body, as one people, right, with a variety of gifts, but all united together under one Lord, that the scriptures remind us of the truths of what Christ has accomplished, of the power of what he has built in the church, bringing together us rebels who have rejected God who have sinned against one another to bring us all together, we're taught in the scriptures of the work that Christ has done. We read in the scriptures of the unity of the Trinity, each one giving glory to the other. We're reminded in the scriptures that one day, that Christ who is our peace is ultimately gonna restore all things and make this thing new and bring resolution and peace. And so it gives us hope when we read about those things in the scriptures We're given encouragement to know that we're defined as people who've been made by God, who bear his image, and that we have a bond together stronger than our blood, United, united in Christ. And so we should, I think, lament the reality that our world is divisive, it's hostile, But then as Christians, I think that reality should drive us to Christ, knowing that he's our peace. It should drive us towards one another because the church is meant to be a foretaste of the peace that Christ is going to bring fully and forever. So yes, as we exist as exiles in a world marked by pride and hostility and division, the church should be a people set apart who are willing to bear with one another to show the world something entirely different, he writes, so that God would be glorified. That's the whole motivation here. That's the the ultimate goal, he writes, in verse six, is that, that word that means here's the reason for all of this, is that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The picture that he has in mind here, the result 
of us doing the work of bearing with one another and building each other up is that we would have one voice so that God would be glorified through us and in the church. Our obedience here is for the purpose of glorifying God. And so our relationships that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ, they have the potential to reflect God's very nature. That as he sacrificed himself for us, we sacrifice ourselves for one another. As he forgave us an enormous debt, we're willing and ready to forgive one another. And so we affirm the truth of the gospel by eagerly preserving the unity that we have in Christ. And on the flip side, when we don't work at it, when we tear down, when we despise, when we judge, we deny the truth of the gospel that Christ has accomplished for us something so great, uniting us together as one family, reconciling all of us together back to God. We denied that truth when we're not willing to bear with one another. When we're quick to despise and judge. Jesus says it very clearly in John chapter 13 that it's by this that all people will know that you're my disciples in the way that you love one another, right? That's the distinction. That's how people are gonna know that you're in me, that you're a part, that you belong to me. The way that they're gonna know that, the way that they're gonna see that, the way that they're gonna reach that conclusion is the way that you love each other. And he prays it in John 17, asking the Father to make us one so that the world would believe that God sent him. In our culture, I mean, division, distrust are the norm. And to so many, it appears that the only way forward is to ensure that those who agree with you hold power. Even if it means dehumanizing those who disagree. That appears to be the way forward. And yet here in the church, what we have is a place to fail, to struggle, to forgive, and to grow. Right? Because the reality is you, you may be on the right side. You may be the strong in whatever the argument is. But I guarantee that there's an area where you're the weak one. I guarantee you. There are plenty of areas where I'm the weaker brother. And what we all need from each other are brothers and sisters who will bear with us in that weakness, who will build us up in our weakness. And when we do that for one another, it strengthens our own faith in Christ and it bears witness to the truth that he really does break down our hostility and he really does bring peace that there's no other way. That Jesus really does bring a transforming peace into hearts that are filled with pride. Right? That's what it says when we do that. It's an incredible testimony. To, it's a reminder to ourselves, it's a reminder to one another, and it's a reminder to the world of the power of the gospel. I'll give you this example. It, many of us have heard of Charles Spurgeon, a very well-known preacher, lived in England in the 1800s, and on one particular occasion, he found himself in a heated and public debate with a good friend and another preacher in the same city named Joseph Parker. And Spurgeon, at the time, was operating in orphanage. It was a passion of his. It was a cause that he was devoted to and personally invested in. He had given a ton of his own income towards operating this orphanage. And Parker 
one Sunday, was making a comment to his church members that they should take up an offering in order to help Spurgeon's orphanage. And his, his reason was that the, the children didn't have proper food or clothing. And so he's trying to express his support and rally around the cause of what Spurgeon's doing, but it gets back to Spurgeon, right, that, that Parker was questioning the conditions of the orphanage, saying that the kids in, in Spurgeon's orphanage didn't have proper food or clothing, And so Spurgeon feels like his friend just stabbed him in the back. He's deeply offended. And so him being a fiery preacher, he gets up the next Sunday. And before he gets into his passage, he blasts Parker, right, from the front. Criticizing him, challenging him, how dare he, right, criticize this good work that's going on. And so... At that time, Spurgeon's sermons were printed word for word in the paper. So that one, like the others, printed in the paper. And of course, everybody loves, feeds off of this division, this hostility, right? And people are at this twisted and, and sick preoccupation with finding out, okay, what's, what's going to happen? How's Parker going to respond to this? And so, you know, the reporter even asks Parker during the week, are you going to respond on Sunday? And he says, yes. So people are going, right? I imagine there's a lot of people in the pews on that Sunday waiting to hear how Parker's going to respond and the reporters are there. And so Parker says this, I understand that Brother Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today. And this is the Sunday that they take up an offering for the orphanage. May I suggest that we take up that offering for him in our church for he's doing a great work, and I know all of us would like to have a part in it. And the story goes that his compassionate response stirred up so much love and excitement in that congregation, as the story goes, that the ushers had to empty the offering plates three times because they took up such an offering. And so, of course, word goes to Spurgeon as they deliver it, and they say, this is a gift from Joseph Parker. He really promoted your program in church today. And so later in the week, Spurgeon goes to Parker's home, knocks on the door, and he says, you know, Parker, you have practiced grace on me. You have given me not what I deserved. You have given me what I needed. The reality is what we need from one another is that same grace. When we're tempted to abandon, when we're tempted to tear down, we must bear with and build up. And the reality is the world around us needs the church to provide a better picture of the gospel in the way that we welcome one another. And so this exhortation is is really for those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. I want you this morning, think about that Christian. Maybe it's somebody in your home that irritates you or a particular issue that's just flammable. Somebody in your home, somebody in your small group that you just seem to view the world so differently. And at the very thought of him or her, you're you're frustrated, you're irritated. Maybe there's an issue you have with your own congregation and when you get in the car, it's only a matter of minutes before you're complaining about it. Maybe some of you left another congregation recently and you're here this morning and you look back and you think your aim in leaving was to please yourself. Perhaps you didn't seek to build up, to honor your brothers and sisters in Christ. And our call this morning is to stop adding to the noise that distracts from the work of God. 
and instead to work at unity so that we can add to the harmony and amplify this one voice that Paul says brings glory to God and Father. If you're not in Christ, if if you haven't trusted this morning, you're not part of the family of God and you're not sure about all of this, you're not sure about the claims of the gospel, you're not sure about who Jesus is, understand this is, this is really a message to the church and this is the type of family that the church should be. This is the type of family that we desire to be and, and can be. And the reality is, yes, we often do fall short of what God calls us to. But don't let our struggles keep you right, from the one who will never fail you, the one who is ready to bear your burdens and to build you up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. And we, I pray that it would be your words and not my own that the Spirit of God would impress upon our hearts and minds today and throughout this week. That through your scriptures and through your work that, that God, you would in fact grant us to live in harmony with one another that we would be a people whose, whose lives and decisions and the way that we treat one another would affirm the truth of the gospel that we hold so dear. God, may it be true of us here today, of this congregation, that we would be a people who would, with one voice, bring you glory. That our relationships, that our endurance would run counter to what we see in this world. So God, we know that it's only a work that you can produce. And so we pray that you would do that in us. And we pray that you would do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.